I worked for a medical professional for several years when I was in my early 20s and in school. He was a godly man who loved the Lord. He sought to know the Lord. And as he and I were the only two men in the office, even though he was well old enough to be my father, we talked about deep things and he was wise. He thought deeply about life. He thought deeply about theology, about the Lord. And I learned much from him. And on one occasion, because of his experience and the clear witness of his Christian life, I asked him something to the effect of, what's one of the wisest things you've ever learned? Something that has helped you in your life and made you who you are today. And I was expecting a Bible verse. I was expecting this great lofty wisdom. But when I said, what is one of the wisest things you've ever learned, without missing a beat, Without even skipping a moment, he said, life's not fair and Greece is cheap. And what? I was expecting great uh, expounding of wisdom here. And he went on to explain, life's not fair means that you shouldn't expect to live expecting that you deserve good things. Instead, trust the Lord and be thankful when you do receive good things. And then the Greece is cheap part, I I said, well, what great spiritual truth is that? And he simply explained it's better stewardship to change the oil in your car than to buy a new car because you burned out the engine. In other words, live wisely and with forethought. Life's not fair and Greece is cheap. I never forgot that. If I could memorize scripture with the ease that I remembered that, I'd be better off. The point is, is that sometimes when we desperately seek some magical nugget of wisdom, something that will instantly revolutionize our lives, the answer to our question is so overwhelmingly straightforward and plain that we we almost do a double take and say, are you sure that's all? Are you sure that's it? And in our quest over the past few weeks to build a theology of the triumphant Christian life in John 13 and 14, the element of this victorious life that's before us today is, is so simple So obvious that you might initially want your monies back on today's sermon. But thankfully, we've already taken the offering. The deacons are on the way to the bank right now, so it's too late. So far, we've seen the elements of a triumphant Christian life as a confession-filled life. It is a humility-filled life. It is a gratitude-filled life. And today, the obvious and suspiciously simple element of the triumphant Christian life is that the triumphant Christian life is a church-filled life. It is a church-filled life. And we find this element in our text for today, John 13, verses 31 through 35. The Lord Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. He's giving them final instructions before his impending arrest and crucifixion. He has washed their feet in demonstration of humble service to one another. He has identified and dismissed his betrayer, Judas. And now he will give his famous command, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And before we jump right into the text, I want to take some time to make the connection for us between loving one another and the element of a triumphant Christian life that we're calling a church-filled life. How is loving one another a church-filled life? Well, really, this connection is quite simple. If you are in Christ, you are in the church. You don't get to choose, meaning that you are in the church universal. All those who have ever believed the Lord Jesus Christ under the element of the the new covenant. But you're also in the local church. The local church is the small representation of the church universal. There's no such thing as being in Christ, but not in the church. That that person does not exist. Someone who doesn't want to be in the church, by definition, doesn't want to be in Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, you acknowledge this openly. You acknowledge this publicly. Becoming a Christian is not a private decision. It is a personal decision, but it is not private. Matthew 10, 32, Jesus said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. That's not a means of salvation. It's just an indicator of salvation. There is no Christian life outside life in the church. The New Testament doesn't know that dynamic at all. Reformed confessions, such as the Second Helvetic Confession of 1562, these were the, this was the expressed beliefs 
of the Swiss reformers in the 16th century. They would go so far even as to say that there's no salvation outside of the church, that you can't say, I'm a Christian, I just don't want to be a part of the church. The Helvetic Confession says, outside the church of God, there is no salvation. But we esteem fellowship with the true church of Christ so highly that we deny that those can live before God who do not stand in fellowship with the true church of God, but separate themselves from it. And it goes on to give the illustration of Noah's Ark that you couldn't say, I want to be saved, I just don't want to be on the ark. The Belgic Confession of 1561, this speaks of the obligations of church members in Article 28. Quote, We believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved, and there is no salvation apart from it, people ought not to withdraw from it, content to be by themselves, regardless of their status or condition, but all people are obliged to join and unite with it, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and by serving to build one another according to the gifts God has given them as members of each other in the same body. And so loving one another is not a general command to go out and love every human being. There are implications for that, as we'll see. But loving one another specifically happens in the context of the church, of the saved. Now, Jesus isn't talking about evangelistic love here that we have for the lost. There are implications for that. We'll see that as well. But in the centuries since the Reformation, the vital importance of the local church has often been watered down to this consumer-driven mentality that there really is now the norm in, for example, American evangelicalism that makes the church the servant of the church member instead of the church member the servant of Christ. And there is a big difference between those two. And as a result of this watering down of the vital importance of the local church, numerous myths about involvement in the church have become now fairly common and and really the norm. This is what people believe. I want to give you four of these myths. Myth number one, I can do church at home. I can do church at home. There's an entire movement of professing believers that that say that the head of the home is the husband, the father, and he is also the, the high priest of the home. He's the pastor of the home, and the family is in and of itself a little church. That's not the case. Well, there's a there's a whole other idea that we should have independent church gatherings at home. Now, having an independent home gathering is, is fabulous. That is an avenue to proclaim the gospel of Christ, but it should be moving people toward the local church, toward membership. The independent home gathering is often attractive to attenders who believe themselves above being intimately involved in the local church for whatever reason. And I have talked to people who have said, I I can't be involved in a local church. Do you know how much money I have? Do you know how famous I am? I can't possibly be in a local church. You know what Jesus' answer would be? Well, then give it away if you can't be involved. It, It is a high view of self that says, I am the exception, or I'm too famous, or I'm too wealthy. There are elements in the independent home gathering that are often missing. You're missing qualified elders, You're missing knowledgeable expository preaching. You're missing the expectation of service and sanctification. You're missing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And without those things, it's not a church. It's just a bunch of believers who happen to be rebelliously having dinner together. That's it. The Belgian Confession affirms this as well. Article 29, the marks of the true church, pure preaching of the gospel, the administration of baptism in the Lord's table, and it practices church discipline. Quote, by these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. It is an arrogant thing indeed to say we can do church at home. Find me an apostle who believed that. There were none. Here's a second myth concerning the local church. I can be more interested in the church universal than just my local church. I can be more interested in the church universal than just my local church. 
This is at times an excuse to not be fully vested in, in one local body, to believe yourself to be more enlightened than us poor slobs who give and serve and pour out their lives in the local church. Uh, this is a disease that's often unintentionally spread by parachurch organizations, even with the very best of intentions. The great Charles Spurgeon, the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, for 38 years, on his 50th birthday, he was given a list, and it was read aloud at this celebration, a list of 66 parachurch organizations that he had founded. What a, what a legacy, what an amazing legacy. But what's the difference between what he did and what generally happens today? All 66 of those organizations were joined at the hip with the local church and with a body of qualified elders. They weren't independent. There is no biblical model for the parachurch organization. It doesn't exist. That doesn't make it inherently wrong. The Lord has used all kinds of parachurch organizations to do good things, but Jesus never said that I will build my parachurch. He said, I will build my church. And parachurches, historically, what do they do? They get off track, they get off mission, they water down the gospel, they become all about one issue that has ultimately nothing to do with saving souls. And they got off track. The 1 Timothy 3.15 says that the church is the household of God and it is, quote, the pillar and buttress of the truth, that the church is the vault in which Christ has entrusted the truths of the gospel, that holding tightly to the doctrines of grace, to the orthodox understanding of an, inherent, of an inerrant and inspired Bible, of a God who is trinity, of the substitutionary death of Christ, of the literal bodily resurrection of Christ. These are truths entrusted to the church. And there's great freedom in this, such freedom. Christ has ordained that local church assemblies is our avenue of discipleship and loving one another. This is what we do. Each local assembly is responsible for itself. You're not responsible for every other local church nearly to the same degree that you are your own local body. And there can be those who say, well, I'm all about world missions. I'm all about world evangelism. Well, how about being all about cleaning up the church that you're in? How about being about serving there? Well, no, I've got a bigger mission. Not according to Scripture, you don't. This is our responsibility. This is our mission. There's a third myth that has been perpetuated. I am not personally responsible for anyone else. I'm not personally responsible for anyone else. And this goes along with the I'm above just the, the mundane muck and mire of the local church. The 50 other times, 50 plus times that the New Testament speaks of how we interact with one another contradicts this myth. There are over 50 one another's and it doesn't have to do with theoretical ideas like how do you deal with a missionary who's 7,000 miles away. It has to do with how do you deal with that person you don't like who just sat next to you in church. That's what one another's are about. You are responsible for others. It is your responsibility you are to be equipped for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4.12. You're to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. You are to do the work of faith and labor of love, 1 Thessalonians 1.3. You're to give financially and generously to the work of the local church, 2 Corinthians 9.8. You are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, in Galatians 6. Whose burden are you bearing? That's a great question to ask yourself. Who are you invested in? Someone who's routinely in the habit of attending occasionally, why is that? It might be because you don't have a sense of your responsibility to others. That your consistency doesn't make a difference one way or another. I am not personally responsible for anyone else. That's a myth. You are responsible. And there's a fourth myth, perhaps the most pervasive today, my own experience in the church is my paramount focus. My own experience in the church is my paramount focus. This is a hard one to get over, and many might argue that we have a right to a completely comfortable and positive experience in the church. But let me put that in a different vein. I think we might be more hesitant to say the same thing for marriage. 
because we know that the Bible wouldn't support this position. The Bible would never support, we know this, to say my own experience in my marriage is my paramount focus. That, that's the antithesis of the marriage vows that we took. We don't say, I, I promise to be faithful to you in health and in wealth, period. We say in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer. There is a, there's an unconditional aspect to this. Your paramount focus in the church is to be faithful, to, to serve as unto the Lord, to pray for the lost and to maintain unity of the faith in humility. Why is this? Because the ultimate mission of the church isn't about my experience. The ultimate mission of the church is the, the preservation and the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. One of my seminary professors is famous for saying, and he's exactly right, that the doctrines of grace and the truth of an inerrant Bible, these things are safest in the laps of the church member. That's the safe place. Because churches don't try to change the Bible. Seminaries do that. Churches don't try to change the gospel. Cults do that. The Bible is entrusted to you. The truths of the gospel are entrusted to you. Why? Because we're the ones called to proclaim the gospel. Why do you think that when you became saved, you didn't just get taken straight to heaven? It's because we have a mission. John Miley, in his 19th century systematic theology, he writes of church membership and why it's so vital, and, and he expresses this so well. He says, The duty of church membership appears in another view. The evangelization of the world is clearly the mission of Christianity. But the fulfillment of this mission requires the church because the instrumental agencies for its accomplishment are not else possible. Hence, membership therein is plainly a common Christian duty. In the 19th century, membership in the church was common. Today, it's something we beg people for. He goes on, For if one might omit or refuse membership, so might another, and so might all. In this case, there could be no church. But without the church, Christianity could have no future, nor could it ever have attained a place in history. What if Peter and Paul and the fathers and martyrs and the great reformers and the many efficient heralds of the gospel had assumed the position of privacy in their Christian life and refused all organic union and cooperation? In that case, their evangelistic work never could have been wrought, and Christianity, instead of becoming the salvation of mankind, would have perished in its inception. What would have happened on the day of Pentecost when the Apostle Peter had 3,000 souls repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins if he had said, well, guys, just have a great day and hope your life is blessed? What would have happened? The church would have died. But instead, the very next verse, they gathered together in prayer, breaking the bread, the apostles' teaching. So we can say with great confidence that loving one another is directly tied, directly joined at the hip, directly correlated to a church-filled life. Now, let's move into our text of John 13, 31 through 35. Jesus gives an introduction. He gives a rationale and the reasoning behind the commandment he's about to give them. We'll move briefly through the rationale, through his introduction, and then really get into the heart of the text in verses 34 and 35. But first of all, verse 31, when he had gone out, that is Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. The glorification of Christ, the glorification of the Son of Man, is speaking of the cross. His obedience to the Father brings glory to God, and the results of the cross will bring glory to the Son Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This is associated very strongly with the glory of the Messiah. Of the Son of Man, Daniel 7 verse 14 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so the title of Son of Man is associated with the glory of Messiah. But the title of Son of Man is also associated with the suffering of Messiah, the suffering of a man to pay for the sins of men. And so you put these two together, Christ will be glorified through his suffering. Does that make sense? That's why he refers to himself as the Son of Man. 
And then Jesus presents the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. Verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. We can divide this into three little facts that Jesus gives here. The first fact, God is glorified in Christ. God is glorified in Christ. That is through his crucifixion. How is God glorified through the crucifixion of Christ? Well, we could make a a list here. It shows God's power. It shows God's power through the death of Christ. God will crush the power of sin over humanity. Only he can do that. Not only shows God's power, it proclaims the justice of God, proclaims the justice of God that he doesn't just let sin go. He doesn't wink at sin. Sin must be paid for. There must be a price that's exacted because he is just. It certainly displays the holiness of God. Without the holiness of God, the justice of God needs no expression. But the holiness of God demands that all that is unholy be separated from God. By virtue of the cross, that which is unholy is now brought to justice. It shows a holy hatred for all that's impure. It shows a holy hatred for all that's impure. When Christ becomes a curse for us, as Galatians 3.13 states, God pours his holy fury on him as if Christ is the object of his hatred. It shows God's consistency. God promised a redeemer all the way back in Genesis 3.15, and here he is. And certainly the cross showed God's love. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the first fact, God is glorified in Christ, shows God's power, his justice, his holiness, his holy hatred of all that's impure, his consistency, his love. And so God the Father is glorified. The second fact here in verse 32 is that God will subsequently glorify Christ in himself. God will glorify Christ in himself. How is that? Through Christ's resurrection and his ascension. Jesus would pray in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, bring me back home. Bring me back to all that I had before. God will be glorified in his satisfaction of the demands of God's justice. Christ will satisfy the demands of the wrath of God for all who would believe in him. The debt would be paid, Colossians 2, 14. Christ would destroy the power of sin. He will receive glory for that that amazing act, Romans 8, verse 3. He'll destroy the power of Satan who continues to deal death. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John 3.8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then we get a third fact in verse 32. It's a very simple one. All of that is happening now. It's all happening now. The crucifixion is hours away. Judas has gone. He's left to go gather the temple guard to arrest Jesus. The clock is ticking now on the arrest of Jesus Christ. And listen now to how tender Jesus is with his disciples, especially now that Judas is gone. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, Jesus refers to, just as I said to the Jews, at least two places in John, chapter 7 and in chapter 8, Jesus announced his departure, that he was going away. But that was to the Jewish leaders, and his theme to the Jewish leaders was very different, that once he departed, he would no longer be accessible. His revelation is closed, and they will have missed their chance. They will have missed the salvation of the Son of God. Now, in the case of the disciples, where Jesus is going, they can't come either. Not yet. In the meantime, their faith will now face very different demands. They will be required to trust the Lord, though they no longer see him for a little while. And so he's about to be glorified at the cross. He's going to his father. Therefore, 
we get to verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus has given the commandment. This Greek word means an order, a a regulation. There's no sense whatsoever that this is a suggestion of any kind. He is saying, you must love one another. You must. And in here, he gives four reasons that you must love one another. And I'd like to walk through these with a little bit of detail. The first reason, you must love one another to demonstrate covenant loyalty. You must love one another to demonstrate covenant loyalty. Jesus doesn't use words like suggestion, proposal, advice, recommendation. He says this is a commandment. Now, to our New Testament ears, that sounds very Old Testament-like, doesn't it? We automatically think of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. But it's interesting that Jesus says this is a new commandment. Now, this is a little odd because this is certainly not a brand new idea, never revealed by God before. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what's new about this commandment? What's different? What's unique? What's the new twist here? Well, there's several factors we could identify. Let me give you three. First of all, this is specific love. This is specific love. This isn't just love for everybody in general. This isn't a call to be Mother Teresa or Gandhi. This is a love for the new messianic community that is about to form, the church of Jesus Christ. This isn't speaking of love for humanity in general, although that will be implied shortly, but it is specific love. Also, it is sacrificial love. It's sacrificial love that we are to love as Christ will love them by by laying down our lives. This is sacrificial love. This is self-sacrificing love. It's giving love. It's unrestricted love. Even in the Old Testament, there were limits to love. There are numerous laws that say that if your neighbor is in trouble, you must do A, B, and C, but you don't have to do D, E, and F. But sacrificial love is love that takes as far as, as is necessary. And it is superior love. It's superior love. It is the love of Christ's followers, not for love's own sake, but for the sake of Christ. It's loving out of obedience to Christ, not love based on what I might get in return, not love based on just being a nice person in general. This is a new era of the new covenant, and at the core and the the center of Christianity is love. It's specific love, sacrificial love, superior love. That's why this is a new commandment. Now, there is certainly some discontinuity. There are differences between the Old Testament law and what the Bible calls the law of Christ. There are differences. Animal sacrifices are abolished because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. The church is not a nation in the political sense that Israel was. And the Old Testament law did have an expiration date. It expired at the cross of Christ. But the new covenant is perpetual. So there are differences. There are some discontinuities. But there are many more areas of similarity, of continuity. To put it pointedly, one of the biggest similarities is that obedience to the law of Moses then and obedience to the law of Christ now both constituted a demonstration of covenant loyalty. What did God say he would do with Israel if she demonstrated covenant treachery, was unfaithful to the loving and the kind commands of her God, committed spiritual adultery? What did he say? He would discipline her as a nation, and he did. And they still remain nationally under the discipline of God. And what does God say he does with a believer in Christ who demonstrates covenant treachery, who is unfaithful to the loving and kind commands of the Savior? We see an example in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul condemned the Corinthian church for being unloving toward one another. And then he gives instruction concerning the Lord's Supper, communion, what we're receiving today as a body, and still in the context of acting in an unloving manner toward one another in his instruction concerning the Lord's Supper, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Why? Because they were not obeying the law of Christ. Now, to be sure, the discipline of the Lord to every, uh, to every one of us in one degree or another happens to every Christian. We know that. Hebrews 12, verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? This is for our good. This is to produce the, the fruit of righteousness in our lives. But the commands of the New Testament to be very clear, are just as binding and just as serious upon us as the commands of the Old Testament were to the faithful Jew. It's the same concept. It's not legalism, it's Christianity. You don't get saved by trying to keep the law of Christ. You keep the law of Christ because you are saved. To ignore or to redefine or to make them culturally acceptable is to demonstrate covenant treachery. Against the Lord. Well, let's just make women pastors. Who cares what the Bible says? Let's flip-flop the roles in marriage. Who cares what the Bible says? Let's not discipline our children. Who cares what the Bible says? Let's let anyone who says they're a Christian with their mouth without showing testimony and not wanting to be baptized, let's let anyone into the church. Who cares what the Bible says? What is that? That is rebellion. That is disloyalty. Can I put it this way? The fear of God is not an Old Testament concept. The fear of God is a universal concept that transcends covenant, transcends time periods. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Since then we have these promises, new covenant promises. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The new covenant is not a free pass to do whatever we want. Not being under the law of Moses doesn't mean we're under no law at all. We're bound by the law of Christ if you love Christ. If you do not love Christ, then you're bound to the law of sin and death. By the way, Romans 8 says those are your two choices. You may be bound by the law of Christ or you may be bound by the law of your own sin. That's it. Those are your options. You will be loyal to one or to the other. So first, you must love one another to demonstrate covenant loyalty. So second reason we love, you must love one another to validate your theology. You must love one another to validate your theology. The end of verse 34 says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, just as I have loved you, this isn't so much in exactly the same way, but that you're obligated because I have loved you. And the key to understanding this is that, that this is exactly the same lesson as the foot washing. Look back earlier in the chapter at verse 14, and we remember the lesson of the foot washing. Verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, if I, who am infinitely superior to you, can wash your feet, then you must wash one another's feet. And in the same way now... If I, who am infinitely holy and pure, have loved you, who are sinful and filthy and disgusting in your sin, then you must love one another. You see how he's backed us into a corner? Who are you to say you, should, you don't want to love your brother or your sister? I did. Why did Jesus love his disciples? Was it because they were so wonderful, so handsome, so gloriously wise? They did crazy stuff. They tried to walk on water. Who does that? They argued with him. They argued amongst themselves. Do you know why Jesus loved them? He loved his disciples because he loved his father. He loved his disciples out of love for his father. Love characterizes Jesus' relationship with his father. John 14, 31. I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. And his love for his father is demonstrated and manifested in obedience to his father's will. 
In his great high priestly prayer, Jesus will explain his love for his people, for the filthy sinners that we are. He says in verse 26 of John 17, The love with which you have loved me may be in them. In other words, Jesus loves his people because of the Father's love, because the Father has loved him. And therefore, the disciples are to love with the same expression as Jesus, the same motivation as Jesus, a love characterized by committed obedience because of love they have received. What's the simple verse that all of you know? We love because he first loved us. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells the classic and thought-provoking parable of the servant who was forgiven a vast amount of debt by his master, and yet when a fellow servant couldn't repay him a small, minuscule, little tiny debt, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And he threw his fellow servant in prison until he should repay the debt. And when the master found out, he summoned the wicked man and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt Because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So how does loving one another validate your theology? How does it validate what you believe? If you truly believe God is great... And this great God lowered himself to love you, then it's not a problem for you to love. God, the sinless one, has stooped down to love you who are sinners, and therefore you who are sinners should not have an issue with loving fellow sinners. In fact, it almost should be, I I don't have a single reason not to love you. I, I have no excuse. This validates that you believe that God is great and you are not so great. It validates that. We must love one another to demonstrate covenant loyalty. We must love one another to validate your theology. You must love one another to initiate the Great Commission. This is our third reason. You must love one another to initiate the Great Commission. Jesus commanded his followers in Matthew 28, famously called the Great Commission, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here in John 13, 35, in his final word about loving one another, Jesus gives this evangelistic angle. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now you notice that his emphasis here is not make sure you get the gospel message right, although that's true. His emphasis is not make certain that the church is focused on the preached word of God, although that's true. His emphasis is not make certain the songs you sing are thoroughly scriptural and God-honoring and not man-centered, although that is true. His emphasis is not make certain you have the right church government of fully qualified elders, although that is true. First, he says, make sure you're loving one another. This is what initiates, this is what begins the fulfilling of the Great Commission because love for one another is the living testimony of the power of the gospel to radically change lives. How do people know you're different? Because of how you love. And conversely, a loveless church is not one you can invite people to. They may hear a gospel presentation, but the lovelessness of the members will invalidate the message. In the early church... The apostolic sign gifts, such as speaking in tongues and unlearned human language and prophetic gifts, they were still in operation. This was prior to the completion of the inspired text of the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul was calling the church of Corinth to orderliness and and regulation in their use of the gift of tongues. And he said that, quote, "...tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers." a sign that something supernatural is happening and it was the means by which the gospel could be proclaimed to a guest who spoke a different language. And so he says that if everyone is in chaos, speaking in tongues, he says, if outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds because there's this chaos happening? And in contrast, Paul talks about 
prophecy, the foretelling of the gospel message. And Paul says that in contrast, and he exaggerates for effect, by, by saying if everyone in the assembly is speaking the gospel, then something different happens. He says, but if all prophesy, that is foretelling the gospel, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, I'm not talking about speaking in tongues or about prophecy today. What I am showing you, though, is that Paul is giving the church's default, the church's de facto evangelism strategy. What is it? When an unbeliever or outsider enters. For 20 centuries, how have almost every single new convert, how has every single new convert come to faith in Christ? Very simply, by being invited to church. God bless all the wonderful evangelism efforts. And yes, we send people overseas to, to proclaim the gospel. What's the first thing a good missionary does? He plants a church. In this case, Paul is giving specifics about the use of miraculous sign gifts, which we no longer need today. But did you catch the principle? The principle here is very simple. The way the church will grow in terms of new converts is through their perception of how the believers are treating one another and how they're acting. And according to Jesus Christ, when this happens, how will the unbelievers know that you are truly followers of Christ? How will they know that something has changed in your life that they need if you have love for one another? Let me put it this way. It's as if God turns to the world and says, you have my permission. You may judge whether or not a person is a Christian based on how he treats other Christians. You may judge the truthfulness of the message of Christ based on your observation of how my people treat one another. That's heavy. That's heavy duty. That's why we must love one another to initiate the Great Commission. Let me give you one more reason. You must love one another to authenticate your faith. You must love one another to authenticate your faith. Verse 35 has another vital truth embedded in it. You are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I put it this way, there's no such thing according to Jesus as an unloving Christian. To say that you're a Christian but to demonstrate a consistent lack of love for fellow believers, a consistent lack of being, remember what the connection is, vitally connected to the local church body is what we might call spiritual identity theft. Pretending to be someone that you're not. Now, if you've ever had to authenticate your identity, you can relate to this. If I call my bank with a question, because of today's security concerns, they want to authenticate my identity. If I don't have all this information with me and they'll say something like, we just need your address, your birth date, the precise circumference of your head, what your wife gave you on your third anniversary, and the full name of the receptionist on duty the day before you were born. If you can give us all that, then we'll authenticate your identity. And, and we go, well, that's so inconvenient. But I'm glad that they're doing that. I'm glad that, that, that some clown can't call in and empty my bank account because he tried to be me. What is your valid ID as a regenerate Christian? What is your ID? Well, the Apostle John tells us, in fact, he tells us repeatedly. I, I think this conversation here must have deeply impacted the Apostle John because in his first epistle, it's like he can't stop saying it over and over again because the Holy Spirit inspired First John in this letter to say the same thing repeatedly. I'll just give you five places. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The very next verse, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The very next verse, or two verses later, rather, verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's six times in five verses. There are at least 18 more times that the Apostle John says, if you love one another, you are in Christ. If you don't love one another, you're not. He's very black and white about this. 
In all the writings of John in the New Testament, he speaks of love 116 times, deeply impacted by the words of Christ here. By the way, the first half of 1 John chapter 2 is basically an exposition of John 13, 34, and 35. It's an extended explanation. What reveals the heart of the fraud? It is lack of love for the church of Jesus Christ, for the people of God. And this is demonstrated by letting others do the loving, by letting others bear one another's burdens, by letting others give financially to support the work of the ministry, by letting others proclaim the gospel to our children, by letting others do the hard and messy work of entering into vital relationships with one another. Once upon a time, a man thought he loved a woman, and he wanted the benefits of being with that woman, And so he got down on one knee and with great romance said, Sweetheart, I love you. I want you to serve me and do things for me. I don't really want to marry you because I'm afraid that if I make that commitment, it might be hard. And I'm going to constantly keep one eye out for a better option just in case things don't work out. I don't have a ring for you because I don't feel our relationship is important enough to invest financially in it. But I love you. And I want you to be there for me. What would that woman do? I don't know, but I hope he checked his health insurance coverage before he made that speech. Because you and I both know that's not love. That's not commitment. She would say, get lost. No. A true believer in Christ is known for the love that he or she has for Christ's people. Not a general, uncommitted love for general people, but a specific committed love for specific people. It is a, it is a choice that you make. Somebody asked me a year or so ago about the time that when we came to Grace Bible Church and asked me, well, how long did it take you to love the church? I said, that question is irrelevant. I decided to love the church before I set foot in here. That's what Christians do. It means jumping into the mire of human relationships amongst the body of Christ. It means taking risk. Listen, if there wasn't messiness involved in the church, Paul would have never said in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Peter would have never said in 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. John would have never said in 1 John 3.11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another they all knew it was messy the true christian has been given the holy spirit and the holy spirit authenticates the salvation of the believer by bearing spiritual fruit in the life of that person and what's at the top of the list of the fruit of the spirit in galatians 5 22 the fruit of the spirit is love it's at the top of the list it becomes then the authentication of your faith So how do we apply this reality? How do you live the triumphant Christian life by living a church-filled life? In the spirit of shepherding and honesty, can I give you three admonitions? First, invest. Invest. If you've been at Grace for some time and you know in your heart that you are not truly invested in one or two or three others at a real and intimate level. Could I say this in all love? Repent of acting like an unbeliever and get to church. Invest. We give you a second admonition. Forgive. Forgive. If you know in your heart you continue to be angry or even mildly upset at the brother or sister in this body, confess this as sin. And by the way, may God have mercy on you if you take the Lord's table today without confessing. Invest, forgive, and third, be humble. Be humble. If you know in your heart that you are internally looking down on someone, if you know that, learn the lesson of the wicked servant of Matthew 18 who saw himself as better than his fellow servants, and just stop. The church of Jesus Christ is the place at which God gathers the dregs of humanity, and he saves us. Praise God.
If you are worried about the person in the church who is the biggest irritant, just go look in the mirror and say, I need to do something about that person. In the eyes of God, every believer is lovely. Every believer is going to be sanctified and fully made like Christ. How do you love one another by being humble? Well, you fully know what John taught with such gentleness and kindness in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's a really kind way to say we're children of God now. We're just not fully sanctified yet. And isn't it irritating when somebody next to you isn't being as sanctified as fast as you think you are? Isn't that tough? Maybe the Lord put that irritating person in your life to help your sanctification. Do you ever think of that? And just a few verses later, John says, love one another. The Apostle John was famous for being an old man around the age of 100 where he couldn't even walk anymore and being carried into the assembly of the church saying over and over again, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. That was his heart. Pretty good for a guy who used to be called the son of thunder. My prayer for you and for all of us is the same as the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now thanking you so much for the core, the centerpiece of Christianity, and that is love. We think of Romans 5.8 that you demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, now it is our privilege to return some of that love that you showed, to do what you commanded, to remember the Lord's table, to remember the suffering of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is toward that end we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.